It's helpful if I turn on the microphone. Not Johnny's fault, my fault, lest you uh, try to blame the sound guy. Uh, welcome. Uh, if you're new visiting, I didn't get a chance to say hello to you when you came in. Uh, hello, my name's Randy. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're excited that you have joined us as we are gathering to hear God's word and to praise uh, the God who can do anything, as we will see in 1 Kings 20 this morning. Uh, before we jump into the text and before we start, I just will remind you, if you're visiting, we offer scripture journals. Uh, it's just a copy of the book of First and Second Kings with text on one side and empty pages on the other so that people who uh, attend here can take notes week after week. And so if you would like that resource, there's a stack of them uh, in the lobby. You can grab one at any point in time. It's our gift uh, to you. And before we jump into the text of First Kings uh, this morning... Mike Tyson, right? You're like, why is this guy mentioning Mike Tyson in church? Uh, he's one of the scariest boxers of all time. He won his first 19 fights by knockouts and once famously told a reporter, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. He was so sure of his ability to win uh, that he was essentially bragging that I don't, I don't necessarily need a, a plan. I'm just going to hit somebody harder than they can hit me, and I will win. It's just going to be a brawl. And to his credit, he was perhaps stronger and faster than any boxer uh, ever, and his plan, which was just to punch hard, worked very well for him. Uh, it's an adage of the same thing that you might have heard from military, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Uh, the real thing that we're getting at here is, what happens when things don't go according to plan? Somebody's true character begins to come out. And as we open up First Kings, we will go back to our good friend Ahab, and we will see, how does Ahab respond to adversity? There's two warring kings as this text opens up this morning in the chapter. Both of them respond differently to adversity. The first king that we see is seemingly indestructible. His name is Ben-Hadad. He, get he, he gets what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants. Uh, but the other king is little old Ahab, hanging out there in Samaria, the one that we've been working and encountering with the last few chapters of Kings. When Ben-Hadad speaks, we will see he speaks like somebody who is a god. He has a commanding presence. He operates with oath sayings here. Thus says Ben-Hadad. He commands total submission through even his language. But Ahab, interestingly enough, is meek and is after even these first few verses not even mentioned by name, only as the king of Israel. And another note before we dive in here is Ahab in the Bible is perhaps the king that we have the most character development of besides David, right? In a sense, David, he's this man who loves God, who lived for God, whose heart was after God, and yet now we have Ahab, who we have a significant amount of time in text on here in Kings. His character is coming out chapter after chapter, and he is the anti-David. If David was strong and courageous, Ahab is meek and conniving. He's a coward, and we'll see that even more next week when we get into 1 Kings 21. Uh, but why do we bring this up? Well, because we are meant to see Ahab in contrast with David. One is a king who is faithful to God, who trusted God. The other is this weak king who trusts anything and anyone but God. So let's dive into the chapter today, 1 Kings 20. We're going to cover a lot of ground, and so we're going to go uh, at a somewhat brisk pace. Uh, but let us read the first uh, six verses together 
uh, as we begin this morning. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots. He went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my Lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the house of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the way you reveal yourself through Scripture and even through the antiheroes such as Ahab. And as we gather and as we come with whatever burdens we arrive at church this morning with, Lord, uh, we ask that you would help to lift our eyes up off the mundane, up off of the anxiety, off whatever is taking our attention off of you, Lord, and that you would help us to see you, to see your preeminence in this text of kings, Lord, to see your preeminence in all things in our life. We love you. We want to live for you. We want to not be torn by the things of this world, but to have an enduring hope that is found in Christ. And so we pray as we look at your word this morning that you would indeed do that, that you would bring us hope and encouragement and indeed steadfast faith because of the way that you work with your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We immediately notice here in these first six verses the different tone between these two kings. Ben-Hadad speaks, give me, give me, give me. How does Ahab respond? You bet. Like anything you, you want, I will give you. His words are timid and he offers this meek response to him. Ben-Hadad speaks like a god. Thus says Ben-Hadad, you must listen to me. You must obey me. And Ahab speaks as a little child. Yes, Lord, King, right? Whatever you want, I will give you. When faced with adversity, when punched in the mouth, what does Ahab do? He gives up before anything even happens. He offers no resistance. He takes no counsel, right? This is what's most surprising, perhaps. The king has this huge decision to make. Give me your wives, your children, your gold, the treasury of the temple, right? Everything. If the king should do nothing else, he should at least protect his family and the people there. And he says, no, take it all. I don't, I don't care. I want nothing to do with you. But Ahab takes no counsel with the wise men. He doesn't go to his generals. He doesn't say, guys, is there a way out of this? You know, what's our plan? He doesn't go to the wise men of the city. He doesn't seek a prophet. He doesn't even go to Baal, right? He doesn't do anything. He just says, Ben-Hadad, take it. He is a man, we will see, who trusts only in his own strength. And because of this, he actually makes what would be in the eyes of the world today a very prudent decision. He looks out at this army that has surrounded his capital city. He sees really there's no hope. There's 32 kings plus Ben-Hadad, a massive army. And he says, yeah, no thanks, take my stuff. I'm not going to engage in this. 
And before we jump on the ridicule Ahab bandwagon here, many of us, I think, probably face similar situations and respond the exact same way. Like Ahab, we start to run calculations to try to mitigate disaster as much as possible, rather than fighting for what is right. How many times, for example, have we opted rather to be quiet than call out sinful behavior because we know the, real, the relational friction and chaos that will ensue if we start to stand up and say, hey, this isn't okay what you are doing. We make those calculations and we say, yeah, no thanks. I'm just going to stay quiet. I'm just going to stay over here and hope all of this passes me by. We are in those moments showing ourselves to have a little bit of Ahab in us, to be a little bit more focused on what we can do, a little bit more focused on our own self-preservation rather than taking bold stands to live the way that God has called us to live. Many of us have done this, staring out at that impossible situation, feeling overwhelmed and wanting to do nothing more than to duck and run to save our own skins. And so before we go any further, before we even get into the meat of this text, I want to pause and ask for a moment, are there any areas right now in your life that you are being tempted to be like Ahab? To be somebody who is overwhelmed or is taking the easy road out rather than facing what God has brought you head on. To flee rather than to fight. Let this chapter today give you encouragement so let's go back to that poor, pathetic man, Ahab. What happens? Verse 7, let's keep reading. Then the king of Israel called all the elders. Oh, now he does it. Now I'm going to call everybody. He calls all the elders of the land and says, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all of the elders and all of the people said to him, do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, tell my lord the king, all that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, the gods do so, do so to me and more also. If the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, Take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. What is happening here as it begins to unfold more and more? Ahab, looking out for himself, had said, Take whatever you want of mine. But now when he realizes that he's not going to actually be able to appease Ben-Hadad, he goes to the elders and he's like, guys, I tried. I did my best. You know, look at me. I'm a good king. I care for you guys. I tried to sacrifice all of my own things to preserve you, but they just won't stop, right? He doesn't actually, and we'll see this with Ahab's character, ever actually make any decisions on his own. Everybody else makes decisions for Ahab his entire life. But the elders of the nation, whether because they've come to see that they might as well fight because nothing is going to keep Ben-Hadad from taking the things from Samaria, or they have some type of confidence that maybe God will deliver them, we don't know, 
They do what the king couldn't do. They make a decision and they say, Ahab, don't consent, don't give in to this, take a stand. Battle is now imminent with a pledge to the gods of total annihilation by Ben-Hadad. And all of this is background leading us to the next core of this chapter of what Kings 20 is ultimately trying to get us to understand. There's one more character yet to enter into this story. We might read this as a battle between Ahab and Ben-Hadad, but we will quickly see that's not actually where the battle lies. No, it is not this prophet coming. It is Yahweh the Lord. We see that the real battle happening in 1 Kings 20 is a continuation of that cosmic battle in chapter 18 with the prophet of Baal and all of their worship versus Elijah, the prophet of God. Whose God will prevail? Whose God will answer? 1 Kings 18 and now 1 Kings 20 are going to reinforce that God is truly in charge. He is the God who reigns. Ben-Hadad speaks as one who sees himself as a type of demigod, as we've mentioned. He makes statements and speaks with this oaf language like he is a god. Ahab is the meat king with no such view of himself, just a scoundrel trying to survive. But now as we turn to verse 13, this other character, the Lord God Almighty, begins to enter the scene. So let us continue and read some more. Starting at verse 13 through verse uh, 15 here. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? He said, Thus says the Lord, By the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, who shall begin the battle? He answered, you. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. If we fast forward, we see this is a battle, 7,000 versus several hundred thousand. The odds are astounding. No wonder Ahab was really ready to quit right at the beginning. But we see those great words, thus says the Lord. And it's going to show us what this chapter is really about. God's word is certain. There is absolutely nothing that can stop the plan of God. If he has said it will happen, it is as good as done. I would have loved to see Ahab's face here. Can you imagine? This prophet walks in and he says, King, I need to say something to you. If you know anything or been here the last few weeks, you know the way that Ahab has responded to the prophets of God. When Elijah shows up in verse, or chapter 18, he says, Oh, you, you troubler of Israel. Why does he say that to Elijah? Because the prophets are always bringing bad news to Ahab. God is going to bring destruction to you. He's going to discipline you. I can only imagine Ahab's face when this prophet shows up. He's already anxious. He already thinks... You know, everything's going to be destroyed. We have no hope. I tried giving up. I tried waving the white flag before this even starts. And now, of course, a prophet's going to come, right? His face probably turned white, jaw dropping to the floor. Great. What else can go wrong today? Uh, he doesn't have the greatest relationship with these prophets. 
But this prophet comes not to speak a word of judgment on Ahab for his apostasy, for his refusal to follow God. He comes and doesn't bring that word of destruction. He brings a word of deliverance. Why? So that you will know that I am God. How many times is God going to have to do this for Ahab? Many times we will see. So Ahab says, you know, that sounds great. Who's going to do that, God? Like you say you're going to win. Look at this multitude that you've told me to look at. Who's going to do it? And he says, the servants of the governors. And then we see 232. Not a great amount of odds. Ultimately, he says, even worse, Ahab, you're going to have to lead them into this battle. We are doomed, Ahab might, might think, but whatever, we'll, we'll fight. I have no choice anyway. What happens? Verse 16, they went out at noon. While Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and the 32 kings who helped him, the servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out the scouts. And they reported to him, men are coming out from Samaria. He said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. If they have come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them. And each struck down his man. The Syrians fled and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of, of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and the chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. What happens? Battle begins. This battle that Ahab was certain would bring him destruction turns out not to be that way. What has happened? God has delivered his people. God's word is certain. And because of that, we begin to see our limitations do not matter. Because God's word is certain, our resources, our limitations do not matter. Why? Because God's word being fulfilled is not dependent on the resources or actions of men. Because God has said it, it will happen. The God of Israel is the one true God. He has no limitations. He has no deficiencies in resources or otherwise. He can only see battle Ahab for what he has. Hardly anything. Certain destruction. But he lacks to see the resources that are at God's disposal. Our God has infinite resources and can accomplish infinite things. What we lack does not matter for accomplishing his plan. God's word is certain. Our limitations do not matter. How quickly might some of our doubts be chased away if we hold on to this truth that 1 Kings 20 is presenting us this morning? If we remembered that the God who saved us, the God who through his own son has made us sons and daughters by his death, is the God of unlimited resources. Now this doesn't mean that our plans will always succeed, that the resources we lack for our plans, God will provide so we might pray for resources, we might pray for outcomes, and they don't come. This doesn't mean that God somehow failed or was unable to help. It just means that he had other plans. And we are being invited in 1 Kings 20 to rest in the sureness of God's plans. Ben-Hadad is so confident of his victory that there is nothing Samaria can do that he's getting wasted. Battle is coming. He knows it. He has said, tomorrow, I'm attacking the city. 
And what is he doing as tomorrow rolls around? Him and the other kings that are under his command are just kicking it in the booth, right? It's like the waste management open, somebody better cut off alcohol sales, right? <laughs> Ben-Hadad is, he, he doesn't care. We will win. I know we will win. How could we not win? There's this little city. We've totally encircled them. We have many more troops by a wide margin. Even more, Ben-Hadad has had success after success in battle. His troops are better tested than him, but not even the mighty king Ben-Hadad can stop the word of God from being fulfilled. Further, even here, we can today draw strength knowing that God bringing his will to pass is not dependent on our strength. Who does he use to bring victory to Israel? He uses Ahab. We might doubt that we can effectively share Jesus with our neighbors because we don't know the right words. We're not extroverted. We might be ashamed of our house. It's a little dirty or it's not as nice as everybody else's. But God is saying, that doesn't matter. I can use you to accomplish my will in your life and the lives of those that are around you. Just trust in me. We should see God's word to Ahab and be reminded that the one who we serve, the one who has indeed saved us, is the one who owns all things and directs the steps of man. We should see even poor Ahab willing to go into battle and say, well, if Ahab even can be bold because of the word of God, how much more should we have boldness in our life because of Christ? God is not limited by us. We should see him as who he is, not through a lens of what we lack, but as the God who lacks nothing. But let us keep reading. Round two, starting at verse 22 through verse 30. Then the prophet came to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring, the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills. And so they are stronger than we. But let us fight them again in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. And do this. Remove the kings, each from his post, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army you have lost, horse for horse, and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight them in the plain, and we surely will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. In the spring... Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went out against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys, Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined. And the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. Ben-Hadad and his people say, Well, in hindsight, we lost, not because I was drunk. Really, it was because their God is the mountain God. Our God is 
the hill is, is the God of the plains, and so if we fight on the terms of our God, we will then have the proper resources. Victory will be assured. We will fight them, and we will win. This is an affront to God, and we begin to see that this battle really is between Ben-Hadad and the Lord, the God of Israel. So he rebuilds Ben-Hadad, his army, soldier for soldier, and enters to fight little Israel. And what is the picture that we have here? The picture in verse 27 shows us what this looks like. Two little flocks of goats. Imagine like a wrestling uh, announcer. And in this corner, two little goats. And then in this corner, the entire mountainside. Who will win? Uh, Everybody knows, well, the mountainside will probably prevail against these little flocks of goats. And yet, what happens? Israel, again seemingly hopeless in the face of adversity, the word of the Lord comes. What will happen? Why does it come? The Lord says, I will deliver you. And why? Many people read this and say, well, to show Ben-Hadad that God is more powerful than their gods. No. This is the second time God has said, why am I delivering you, Ahab, and the people of Israel? So that you know that I am the Lord. Ahab, I'm delivering you not because these people spoke poorly against me. I don't care what they say. I don't care what they do. I care about your allegiance. You are my people and you have left me. And I'm going to display that I alone am God. That I alone am worthy of worship. That I alone can rescue. God is not acting to defend his honor. He is acting to display his glory that his own people might believe in him. This morning, there is a call for us here. There is a call for us to be reminded that alone there is God. There is no other. There is no other thing that can deliver us, that can give us hope, that can bring us salvation. And if you don't know the Lord, you are invited this morning as you read this text, to see there is no other but Jesus and his wondrous grace. There is no other solution for your problems other than Christ. He is the only hope in this life and the next. He is the only one who could take our wrongs upon himself and make us right with God. And just like God in Chapter 20 here in 1 Kings, Jesus came and saved without being asked. And this morning, perhaps, he is coming to you if you do not know him, if you have not confessed him, and he is pressing on your heart with an offer of salvation. This indeed is a continuation of 1 Kings 18. And another encouragement for us today, because God's word is certain, the people of Israel will have salvation as God displays his power and grace to his people. But we see more than just military victory here. Because God's word is certain, we know that God is patient with his people. Psalms 86.15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Or further back in the law, Ahab would have known these words or should know these words. Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. God has already revealed himself to Ahab twice on Mount Carmel. And now in this first battle when Samaria seemed doomed, God has revealed himself to the people 
of Israel time and time again. They know the histories. They have the stories passed down. They have the feasts. They have the law reminding them that the Lord alone is God and ruler over his creation. And yet, what have they done? They have not turned to trust in him. Ahab has yet to confess the Lord as Lord. But he doesn't give the people over to destruction. He doesn't give Ahab over to destruction. What is he? He is patient. He pursues his people even when they don't pursue him. He's not like us. How many of us think we have patience and we look at our kids and we're trying to be patient and we get down and we say, I'm going to give you one more chance to change your attitude. And then they don't and you're like, that's it. Like game over. I was patient. I tried. Uh, but now you don't have anything, right? We convince ourselves we're patient. But when we get down and that push comes to shove, our patience is very limited. But here is God. Patient, patient, patient. I've destroyed the prophets. I've shown my power on Mount Carmel. What will you do? Well, you try to kill my prophet. Your people were encamped upon. You had a certain destruction facing you, and yet I saved you so that you would know that I am God. What does Ahab do? Nothing. And now, one more time, he's going to be patient and display his goodness to even this rebellious scoundrel, Ahab. They have rejected him, and yet here he is coming to their rescue yet again. We would do well to develop this kind of godly patience in our life. Thomas Watson, famous Puritan, says this, Patience is a grace made and cut out for suffering. Patience is a sweet submission to the will of God, whereby we are content to bear anything that he is pleased to lay upon us. Patience makes a Christian invincible. It is like the anvil that, bear, that bears all strokes. We cannot be men without patience. Passion does not unman a man. It puts him beside the use of reasons. We cannot be martyrs without patience. Patience makes us endure. What if we could develop that kind of patience, this godly patience that is willing to do and endure anything for the sake of God, for the good of those that are around us. If we responded in this way, a type of patience that can withstand even the greatest levels of disrespect, only to be responding with grace and help unprompted. I'm willing to bet that if we had this kind of patience that God displays in 1 Kings 20, we would all be much better spouses, parents, bosses, coworkers, neighbors, Whatever else we're doing, we would be much better at it if we had true Christ-like patience. But then the chapter concludes with a huge sense of irony. Ben-Hadad in the inner chamber, verse 31. And his servants said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the king of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our, sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads and go out to the king of Israel, perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads, and they went out to the king of Israel and said, your servant, oh man, how things have changed. Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. And he says, does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign, and they quickly took it up from him and said, yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, go and bring him to me. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him and caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore, 
and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. What has happened? The strong king who speaks like a god who thought he was invincible is now the servant of weak Ahab. He indeed has shown that his oath when he said, may the gods do to me and more, indeed has come true, but not in the way that he has imagined. He's hiding in this inner part of the city. The walls have collapsed. He has no escape. His army is totally decimated. But his servants say, let us go out in mourning. Let us humble ourselves before the king because we have heard that he is a merciful king. We know this about the kings of Israel. They're merciful. But the word here, merciful, uh, actually could be better captured in a bigger essence that they are faithful to their covenants, which is a big irony, right? We have heard the kings of Israel are faithful to their covenants. When somebody violates them, they still will say, that's okay, I forgive you, let's come back together. And indeed, what does Ahab do? He, he does show some type of mercy to Ben-Hadad. He makes a new covenant with him. What they are saying is, Israel, you have been known to be a nation faithful to covenants. But the real irony here is covenants with who? Right? Not with God. We see over and over in Kings that they have been totally unfaithful to God. They have violated their covenant repeatedly with God. But they are faithful to the world. And Ahab is going to display here that his faithfulness is not to God, the sovereign ruler of the world, but his faithfulness is to the other kings that are around him. He spares Ben-Hadad and he strikes a new covenant between the two. Ahab, who is despaired in the opening of the chapter, now turns to head home with great glee. I can imagine the smile on his face as he's walking through these city streets, leaving Aphek, like the city is decimated, this great army that nobody thought could ever be defeated. Look at me, I defeated them. Maybe people will stop putting me in my dad's shadow and see me as some great military guy now. Uh, he offers no thanks to God, no worship uh, to God for the amazing deliverance that has just happened, like we see with Joshua and Moses and Exodus and even the book of Joshua when uh, the different nations are defeated. No, Ahab says, my brother, Ben-Hadad, it's all good, man. Let's just get on with life. His joy will be quickly turned to mourning, however, as his glee as he heads home has this encounter with one of those prophets of God. Let us finish the end of chapter 20 this morning. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eye. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out in the midst of the battle, and behold, the soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. 
And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go out of your hand the man who I devoted for destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. We might read these first two verses, and like Ron Burgundy say, that escalated quickly, right? A lion mauls them, right? Imagine just going to a guy, hit me. The guy's like, no, I'm not going to punch you. That's it. A lion's going to get you. It's like, whoa, 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 can I hit you? Like, I don't want anything to do with a lion, but it's, this lion comes out. And then the next man comes and hits him, and he sets up this whole scene where this prophet is going to confront Ahab for his disobedience to God. And what do we begin to see as this chapter wraps up? Because God's word is certain, we are called to obey. God's word is certain, and it is certainly serious. Grave consequences await those who are God's enemies. And just because they were born into the house of Israel, they prove they are not children of God. Their genetic heritage is not what will save them. Their allegiance to God, if he is their God, is what will deliver them. But they refuse him, and they are faithful to anyone and anything but him. They refuse to obey. And so for Ahab here, he has traded Ben-Hadad's life for his own life. God's word is certain. Now it doesn't give us the addresses of the house that we should buy, the job we should take, even the name of the spouse that we should marry. But it is full of calls to obedience regarding greed that calls us to examine the way that we are pursuing material possessions or climbing corporate ladders. It gives us instructions, maybe not exactly who to marry, but definitely who not to marry. Uh, who we should be looking for in a spouse, what kind of person we should and should not marry. We could go on and on through Scripture and see Scripture is full of examples that point us to ways that God has called us to be obedient and to follow Him. If God's Word is certain, we are certainly called to obedience. And seeing the fate of Ahab at the end of this chapter serves as a great warning for us. Are we obeying God or are we charting our own paths? Do we look at God's word as a bunch of suggestions, and if it happens to line up with the way that we want to live our lives or the things that we want to do, we're glad to do them. Um, but if we disagree, then it's okay. You know, God has a plan, and I have a plan, and it'll all work out in the end. Uh, it's not that important that I obey everything that God has asked of me. If we look back at Kings in context, what do we remember? These people who are reading 1 Kings 20 for the first time find themselves in captivity. They are in isolation. They have been put under Babylonian rule, and they are asking themselves, where is our God? Is our God really the sovereign God who controls the nations? Is our God the God who is faithful to his promises? And yet, 1 Kings 20 reminds us the answer is yes. But to rebel against him is to court destruction. And they are reminded as they read this in exile that they find themselves in exile not as a result of the inability of God, but as a result of their faithlessness to God. They are not in captivity because God failed. They are in captivity because, like Ahab, they had gone after foreign gods. They had refused to believe and trust in the Lord they have proved themselves not to be sons and daughters, but to be enemies of the Lord. But even now, their God is working to deliver them, for he is the Lord of creation, and he is faithful to his promises. 
And as we finish this morning, we should remember God's word is certain. And that is a challenge as it calls us to obey him and to find comfort in him. God's word is certain. Today, when we're tempted to look around, just like the people of God, who are in captivity and ask, where are you, God? We are instead invited to trust and see his hand in everything. He is the God of creation. He alone is sovereign over all. See him display his patience with Ahab. See him preserve his people Israel and know that he will preserve you as well if you belong to him. There's many promises God makes to us as Christians in scripture. He has promised, for example, to make us sons and daughters. This is 2 Corinthians 6, 16. He has promised to forgive us, 1 John 1, 9. He has promised to answer our prayers, Luke 11:9. 9. He has promised to deliver us from temptation, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He has promised sustaining grace for difficult times, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He has pr- promised provision for all of our needs, Philippians 4, 10. He has promised reward for obedience, James 1:12. And he has promised eternal life. Luke 18, 29, John 3, 16, Romans 6, 22. These are the promises we can hold on to. When all seems lost, we can know God's word is certain. This morning, know that he is your God, that your limitations are not his limitations, that his patience is great, and that he will equip you to walk in obedience to him. A few questions as we finish to ask you and apply to your life this week. One, how can you develop an attitude of looking at God rather than being overwhelmed by circumstances? How can you begin to develop that type of attitude in your life? Number two, how does God's patience with Ahab call you to a great patience with others? And number three, what ways are you tempted today to not trust in God with your life? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you. We know that too often we are like Ahab. We want to preserve ourselves. We want to preserve our comfort. We want to avoid conflict. And yet, God, you are patient, you are merciful, and you work for our good, even when we don't ask. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are the God who came and saved, that while we were still sinners, while we were still your enemies, while we lived in rebellion against you, you sent your Son to die and redeem us. And Lord, we give you great thanks. We don't deserve your grace, yet you gave it anyway. Help us to become people who live like you, people who are not overwhelmed by circumstances, but see your good hand bringing all things to pass. Lord, be, help us to be people who are exceedingly patient, Lord, that are willing to endure suffering and ridicule who are willing to uh, face discouragement and not respond in, in anger or frustration, but who are patient beyond belief, constantly working for the good of others when all they do is return evil and uh, poor responses to us. Lord, we want to be people who live like Jesus. We want to be people who live for Jesus. And so we pray that you would be working in our hearts and our minds to conform us to his image, to make us like him, and make us people who are useful for your good work. Help us to be people who are courageous and not meek and timid like Ahab. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.